Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by journalist and author Jimmy Sony, whose latest book, The Founders, The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley, is generating a massive buzz. The book tells the story of the fascinating group of young entrepreneurs, including, of course, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, who were behind the creation of PayPal more than 20 years ago and have since come to shape some of the most successful companies in the world. I'm grateful to speak to Jimmy about his book, including the legacy of the so-called PayPal Mafia. Thanks for joining us and congratulations on the book. John, thank you so much for, for having me and for the, the very kind introduction. As your book outlines, PayPal was marked by this extraordinary collection of individuals, including Musk, Thiel, Reid Hoffman, and others, who've gone on to shape Silicon Valley for the past two decades. Let's just start big picture. How did this group come together? And more importantly, how did they manage to work together given the strength of intellect and personality involved here? Yeah, you know, you're, you're asking the two questions that, uh, that led me to the project in the first place, to be honest. I didn't think that it was an accident that, that all of these amazing innovators, again, some bold-faced names, many who you've never heard of, all were working at one place at one time at one company that started on University Avenue in Palo Alto. I mean, how is that even possible, right? Like it, it's sort of at some point you're like this strange credulity. There's no way this was a coincidence, right? And so that was part of my, like, actually, that's, exactly the instinct that led me into the project in the first place. And then the second half, the second part of your question is, how did they work together? And, and I would say, you know, it was complicated. <laughs> this was not, the, this, I would say the context matters here. This is not the easiest time for all of these very intelligent, intense personalities to be working together. And the context is these companies are formed uh, essentially in 1999 and by early 2000, the market is on the brink. And by the spring of 2000, the market is starting a slide that it comes to be referred to as the dot-com bust. And so what I would say is it's, it's not just that, you know, you have the, the intensity of the, the players and the personalities and the high IQ points and the, the really the sort of razor sharp minds at play. What you also have is a context in which the sky seems to be falling. Uh, it, the internet, which was once, you know, could, the internet companies could do no wrong. Now suddenly they're being held responsible for the slide, the NASDAQ and the Dow. You had a, a startup born every minute and go public every minute. And now all of a sudden that's all gone. And, you know, we've got to go back to, to brick and mortar businesses because the internet was just all hype. Right. And so there was this really powerful thing happening, which I think I take it in, in my final analysis as a sort of crucible that shaped the this generation of entrepreneurs in this particular group of people, which is that they were at the tail end of the boom, they went through the bust, 
And they saw that even amid all that chaos, you could be successful and build a technology company. And, and it, it powerfully shaped their understanding of what came later. One thing that seems to connect the PayPal group was a shared vision of something bigger than mere wealth and profits. They wanted to create something that fundamentally disrupted the world of payments. How important was this underlying philosophy as a common sense of purpose for the company's uh, early success? It's a great question. And here, I would, I would offer a couple of observations. The first is that philosophy is a very good recruiting tool. <laughs> so let me offer you two pitches, right? Uh, you're, Sean, you're going to join me at a company. And here's pitch one. Sean, you and I are going to revolutionize finance forever. And the, the banking system will never, ever be the same. And pitch two is, Sean, you and I are going to make email payments the greatest thing ever. And everyone's going to be emailing money back and forth. Now, if you're, you know, like most people, pitch one sounds crazy, exciting, super inspiring, a big world historic vision. And that I would say is a big part of the big vision, which is imagine these two companies. PayPal was fundamentally formed from the union of two companies, Elon Musk's company X.com and Peter Thiel and Max Levchin's company Confinity. At the time that these companies are getting going, early 1999, this is the hottest market for engineers in Silicon Valley that I think had ever been seen up to that point. I had an engineer, Santos Gennardin, to say to me, if you got a pulse, if you had a pulse, you got a job. That's the way it was. So when you're in that kind of environment, a very tight labor market, you have to do everything you can to recruit, including selling a big world historic vision. And then later, that, that vision hits the hard reality of, customer acquisition, product market fit, where you're actually succeeding, which in the case of these two companies was an, you know, the, the auction ecosystem eBay is what embraced their emailing money payments product. So a lot of those broader visions had to be dispensed with just for the sake of survival and exigency and, and just actually being, being able to keep the companies alive financially. By the way, I don't take that to be a bug. I take it to be a feature. Storytelling is a very big part of, of Silicon Valley. And I, I explore it in the book. And I think there are critics, you know, of that sort of storytelling where it can, it can move in the direction of hype or bluster or just outright lying. There is also real power in shaping a narrative about what a company can be, about potential and possibility that is, by the way, is why many people join this company. I had someone tell me uh, uh, an amazing, one of the most amazing product leaders I interviewed throughout this process was this woman, Amy Rowe Clement. Um, she goes on to to really be, I would say, like a powerful leader on the team for many people, but an unsung hero. And those are not my words. Those are Elon Musk's words about her. She said to me, I met Elon and he sold this vision, right? The vision was we're going to change finance. And person after person said the same thing. So I, I do think of, of this storytelling, this big vision as a part of what makes Silicon Valley attractive. It's also by easily satirized, right? Like you have sort of, you can tell endless jokes about it. But I, I wouldn't be too quick to discount the power of that narrative and, and of painting a picture of the future that's plausible. And I think that, you know, it's a fine line between the sort of reality of it and the hype, but hype is a powerful recruiting tool too. We'll come back to the subject of the revolution occurring through major sellers on eBay. But before we get there, you mentioned unsung heroes. I'd like you just to unpack that point, if you may. Most of my questions will naturally be about some of the big personalities involved in the early years of PayPal, including, of course, Musk and Teal. But I think one of the critical insights of the book is that that interpretation of PayPal misses some important points. Do you want to just talk a bit about 
the really extraordinary team that came to shape PayPal's early success. Yeah, it was the great, I would say, the sort of great joy and privilege of doing this project. I think in, in the sort of public imagination, you tell stories of Apple and it's a story about Steve Jobs. You tell a story about Microsoft and it's a story about Bill Gates, Facebook, Zuckerberg, and so on. PayPal doesn't have one clearly identifiable personality at the center of the company. It is a mix of these personalities. Now, some of their names we know, but when I went back and even began interviewing the people at the very top, they would point to the other people that had never really been in the press or in books or on podcasts, and they would say, make sure you talk to them. I will give you the most vivid example I can, which is almost a direct call it a mandate from Elon Musk. And we were on the phone and he said, I get enough press. Make sure you talk to the other people who were at the center of this story because there are a lot of unsung heroes. Again, his phrase, not mine. And the people he was pointing, talking about were people like Sanjay Bargava and Julie Anderson and Sandy Blal and Roloff Botha, who, you know, they weren't in the boardroom at, at, at the time, making a lot of the, the kind of the decisions that get reported on by the press, but they were the people on the ground actually making things like customer service work or making banking authentication work or figuring out the right financial model. And I took a lot of heart from that. It also was a challenge. You sort of threw down the gauntlet, right? Like go talk to these people. And I had to by hook and crook and across multiple time zones, go and find them and interview them. I will say I, I, what I hope the book achieves very explicitly is, is at least putting some of the spotlight on People who joined the company early, people who took a risk in their career to join this group of people and push the envelope in thinking about how to develop products and services. The reason the book is called The Founders, but that, you know, that it's not just the specific named, you know, co-founders that are listed on some formal document is because I wanted to expand the definition of founders to people who are around at the founding of a company, meaning that you can be a not named co-founder, but still be hugely responsible for the success and viability of one of these startups. Honestly, I didn't come to that with any kind of agenda. It was more just people would say things like, oh, UPAN was so beyond responsible for some of the early traction we had on auction websites. Great. Fantastic. Let me go talk to UPAN. You know, Musk himself said without Sanjay Barkava's random deposit, they wouldn't have been able to authenticate bank accounts. Great. Let me track down Sanjay in India and let's have a chat, right? And so I wanted that part of it to be, to be developed, to be thought out, because here's the other piece. It's totally self-interested. Those people tell the best stories. <laughs> like, like they were closest to the individual product achievements, the little tweaks, the fine grain improvements that actually made the company tick. And honestly, I, I, I think the book is richer because of it. Now, I don't want to risk contradicting myself or your observations there, but it's notable that Teal is often described as the so-called Don of the PayPal mafia. What gave him that reputation in, in your view? And, and how did his leadership manifest itself in the early days of the company? Yeah, I, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with the phrase PayPal mafia. And I, I kind of write about my own, my own personal feelings about it kind of toward the end of the book. On the one hand, like it's an evocative phrase, right? One, one doesn't associate mobs with payment service processors, right? And so you have this kind of interesting concatenation there of PayPal and mafia. And there was the famous Fortune magazine photo cover that came out in 2007. And it's a really, it's an, you know, instead of just having them standing in front of cubicles wearing polo shirts, you have them in the Tosca restaurant in San Francisco wearing mob attire. So there's a certain, it, it created a certain freshness, a certain, it evokes something and it's memorable. 
On the other hand, I think there were all of 13 people photographed in that particular photo that became the sort of famous PayPal mafia myth. And that's 13 out of several hundred employees across Palo Alto and Omaha that actually made the original PayPal successful. Here's what I would offer about the sort of designation and Peter's role. You know, I think a lot of the PayPal mafia storytelling is about everything that happened after PayPal, right? So it's actually like the mafia swallowed up the whole story, meaning what gets coverage is everything that happened after 2003, meaning Peter's earliest investments in things like LinkedIn and Facebook, SpaceX, et cetera, Elon's achievements at, at Tesla and SpaceX, Max Levchin's creation of Slide, which later sold to Google, Jeremy Stoppelman and Russ Simmons co-founding Yelp, you know, on and on. I think that post-2003 life is what gets coverage. And look, it might disappoint readers, but you're not going to read much about what happened after 2003 in my book. You'll have to look for other sources. I was focused on 1998 to 2002 when, at the time, Peter Thiel was a global macro investor who meets somebody named Max Levchin, gives them a $100,000 loan. By the way, it was a loan, not an investment, a $100,000 bridge loan, and then eventually becomes CEO of the company that becomes PayPal. So I, I think that the designation of the Don is that he was one of the first investors in many companies that grew out of the PayPal alumni group. But I think the entire PayPal Mafia moniker, it better captures sort of 2003 on. It does not really speak to 1998 to 2002. And the way you know that is that a great many of the most important people who helped to build PayPal are excluded from that Mafia photo, including, by the way, Elon Musk. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Well, let's come to that point about Musk. You mentioned earlier, Jimmy, that understanding PayPal is to understand the coming together of these two separate companies. Can you just help listeners understand what led to Teal replacing Musk as CEO of PayPal? What were the kind of factors and conditions that led to what was, at the time was a, a pretty extraordinary decision? Yeah, it's certainly it's the, it's the high point of Shakespearean drama within the within the story, right? Like you you do come away with an appreciation for how how Shakespeare might have been able to understand uh, understand Silicon Valley in some fundamental way. You know, context, as in all things, context matters a great deal here. These two companies that merged, Confinity, which was Peter Thiel and Max Lechin's company, and X.com, Elon's company, they had very different visions at the outset. And, and frankly, like even in the middle of, of their uh, competition, that leads to a merger. But the merger is not some sort of glorious union of a, of a big, happy family. You know, there's still differences of founder vision. And one of the things that among others, David Sachs emphasized to me is he said, listen, you know, Peter replacing Elon was not about emotion. It was about a difference in founder vision. And I think the important thing is Elon had already had a prior success in his sale of Zip2, which was his first startup. He was an early, early internet entrepreneur. That company had sold for $307 million. It was a very big win. 
he wanted something bigger. He wanted to inaugurate a revolution in finance using the internet and using digital technology. And so you have that. Against that, you have, you know, Confinity, which has built this hot viral product called PayPal. And the thought is, well, all of our customers are, are using PayPal for email money transactions, lightweight transactions where PayPal gets to effectively be what's called a credit card master merchant, right? A clearinghouse, making sure that the buyers and sellers are, are legitimate. Solving that problem is not easy. And the idea is, well, that's a win. Like that's something we can do very well. And a revolution in finance can wait. There's again, a difference in founder vision. Context, the additional context that matters here is the company is losing money to fraud, fees. There's a real risk of a, of a credit line program that had sort of gotten bigger than its riches. And all of these things are happening while there's a, a debate about technological architecture. And so I would, I would argue that like that's often the context that's missing from this, this moment or the way the moment has been cast in history. Way, the way it's often been cast is, is quote unquote, Peter made a move against Elon. I, I don't think that's actually what it is at all. I think this was a difference in founder vision. It was a difference in an understanding about technological architecture. And I, would, I say that because having spoken to all of those parties involved in, in this moment, you know, both, actually, both sides actually recognize, particularly with hindsight, what the other side was offering. You know, there are still some disagreements, but at this point, they're sort of, it's sort of like water under the bridge. The context matters, and the context is what precipitates a move by some senior executives and, and some rank and file employees against Elon in the summer of 2000. He is removed as CEO, Peter replaces him. But, and this is critical, Elon remains a very active member of the board. He encourages the employees who are at the company, who he, he recruited to stay with the company. And he does not do anything from the sidelines to sort of snipe at Peter and Max. It's actually a moment of real graciousness. And I would say, even those people who supported his ousting made sure to emphasize to me, listen, he was really gracious. In fact, the email that he sends immediately after Peter's email announcing Elon's departure tells the company to support Peter in his, in his leadership and says that he's, he's sort of grateful. He's not going anywhere. It's quite something, I think, for somebody to be that gracious in the aftermath of something like this. That's a fascinating set of insights, Jimmy. You mentioned that progress in the company is by no means a straight path. Your book documents that it was bleeding money in early days. And the breakthrough seems to have been this recognition that a growth market was frequent sellers on eBay. How did the group come to see eBay as crucial to PayPal's growth? And how did it transform the company? Yeah, I think the, the one word answer would be reluctantly at first, or three word answer would be reluctantly at first. You know, eBay has this interesting and complicated history of its own. In 1999, you know, they're a somewhat more mature company. They're trading on public markets. They have a, a CEO in Meg Whitman, who's an experienced leader, very savvy leader, who, who knows how to communicate with, you know, many different parties, engineers, the press, Wall Street, et cetera. eBay also has focused, uh, you know, again, I, rightly on building the best auction mechanisms it can, building the best place for auctions on the internet. What it hasn't done is figure out the payments part of that process because payments is sort of rife with complexity and fraud and regulations. And so they've sort of let their buyers and sellers reckon, like, you, we'll take care of the auction. You figure out how you're going to pay each other, whether that's by check or cash or messenger pigeon or emailing money from one person to another. Into that uncertain payment context, a step a number of startups, including X.com and Confinity. And, you know, David Sachs kind of gave me the best and others gave me the best description of this, where he said, you know, 
someone from eBay had reached out to ask us to resize our logo. And this was like a customer service request. That logo resizing ask led the team to just go on eBay and type in PayPal and suddenly discover, oh, wow, we're hot here, right? Basically, like, like they love us and we didn't know that they loved us, right? And so this was sort of like unrequited love, right? Like unrequited digital love. And so, but part of what happens is Max Levchin, at first he, he described to me that I was, I was horrified, right? I didn't want to be the payment processor on eBay. We were building mobile technology to do mobile payments. I thought people were going to be money between Palm Pilots. And he made some motions to actually stop eBay, the use of PayPal on eBay. David Sachs and others and the board as well sort of recognized like, look, you, you don't get product market fit, you know, maybe the, at this level more than once in a lifetime. And so we ought to focus on this, really drill down, really make this work. And, you know, there was a later CEO of a company that had thought about acquiring PayPal. And he, he said to me, he said, you know, sometimes a solution just finds a problem, right? Um, meaning that PayPal was a very convenient solution for this very specific problem, but it was not something where the creators of PayPal knew from the get-go that they were going to be the foremost auction payment service in the world. That was so far from their ambition. I would, I would also add to that Musk had always thought of emailing payments as simply like, well, naturally, we're going to do that, but that's a part of a much bigger product suite. But as soon as he recognized that X.com was succeeding on eBay, he too focuses his energy and attention there and his whole team does. I'd like to wrap up, Jimmy, if it's okay, on a couple of big picture questions. At first, PayPal isn't that big of a company. It's not even that significant of a technology, yet it's had this extraordinary cultural significance in Silicon Valley and the world of startups and technology more generally. What do you think PayPal's biggest legacy is? I think the legacy is in a group of alumni who went through this very intense process together of building something under duress, struggling to make it successful, and then seeing it succeed, but not having it succeed at the level that they could all go and retire, <laughs> right? Meaning uh, one person described to me, he said, you know, we had down payment money, but not retirement money. And so you have, you have a kind of, well, we did well. Uh, some of us did better than others, but we've still got to go and build things. And oh, look, we've ha we've had the 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 experience of having built something and it went well. So let's go do it again. I would say that's that's one legacy. The second legacy is more specific and and actually is, is probably you know interesting to folks who are familiar with tech. This company had to think very rigorously about product distribution, meaning not just building a great thing. But how do you actually get users to use this great thing and then encourage that use in different ways through different tools and techniques? And that's a, it's a bit of a nuanced point, but it's actually hugely important because, uh, you know, I had a few people tell me like, look, at, at Google, they have this fire hose of traffic. They could just sort of redirect the fire hose wherever they'd like, right? Especially in that era. And they said, you know, we had to figure it out. We were getting hooks into different markets. We were getting hooks into the gambling market and hooks into this market and that market. And we had to figure out how we were going to actually distribute our product. All of the leaders, particularly in the product group who emerge from PayPal, have a very, it's a hard won appreciation for the difficulty of product distribution. And that's really important. And it's a part of, of the literature that comes out from this group. It's a part of their, I, I would say, like I would give you the best example, YouTube emerges from this group. The three co-founders of YouTube come out of the PayPal alumni group. YouTube was very savvy in its early days about product distribution, making sure that they were even picking little fights with MySpace when MySpace would do something, you know, and they would embed YouTube videos into MySpace, right? A blast from the past. This group learned to be aggressive about that. But the final thing I would say is 
there was value in being able to pick up the phone and call members of this community to, to recruit, to ask for money, to ask for support, ideas. You know, you don't want to make too much of the network because it was such a big network by the time it finished. It's not like a small group of 10 people, as I hope I described. But Max Lebchin invests in Yelp. Uh, Reed, Reed Hoffman, I'd found old notes from Reed Hoffman, which was sort of the, the, the email version of a, of a sketch on a napkin of what net LinkedIn could be. And he's like reaching out to different colleagues saying, hey, here's my idea for LinkedIn. You know, I'd love for you to. And so there was a bit of that, that, that once you've been through something this intense with this group of people, you're naturally going to call them, right? And say, hey, I have this idea. Do you, do you think you'd want to work on this? I remember to end with Santosh Janardin, you know, Santosh, gets a, he has a job. And, uh, and he's got a, he's got a gig that he's, he's working on and he gets a call from his friends who have founded this company called YouTube. And they didn't even really interview him. They just said, just, just show up on Monday. We'll be good. You'll, we'll figure it out. We know you. We like you. And I remember he told me, he's like, yeah, I made the mistake. I showed up at the office early and I'm in the parking lot. And the only two people in the parking lot are me and MC Hammer because, <laughs> because MC Hammer was there to do some deal with them or something. He's like, it's me and MC Hammer. And then the office opens up and they're like, oh, Santos, yeah, great. Come, come join us. Come be a part of this. And, and I will say the final piece, and this is relevant to the Santos story. He had a great, great job where he was eventually when YouTube was acquired by Google. He later gets a, a phone call for another site that's starting up that needs some help of the kind that he can offer. And it's a young entrepreneur named Mark Zuckerberg. And he's got a site called The Facebook. And he gets an offer. It's much lower than what he would make where he is at, at Google. And he returns home to his wife and he says to her, listen, I'm going to take a big pay cut. I know Google's going to try to retain me, but there's something about the energy of this place that reminds me of that first risk I took when I went to PayPal. We've, we've got to do this. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. In a world of conformity, are there any lessons from PayPal on how to cultivate a culture of heterodoxy and even weirdness that can contribute to real breakthroughs? A hundred percent, yes, which is sort of the easy pat answer. I think it's incredibly hard to be comfortable with the fringes and the oddballs and the, the weirdos of the world. And I think part of what happened in the particular case of PayPal is that you had a group of people who were at the founding of the company who were okay with individuals who might show up with the wrong clothes on, right? Or individuals who maybe were a little, little surly or introverted or would say offbeat things, right? I can't tell you, it's in the hundreds, certainly, the number of offbeat observations that these people made, even reflecting to me years later, right? They've now become prim and polished and they know how to do all the right interviews and they now have the right clothes. But even now, the things they remember are, you know, a, a comment about like IKEA furnishings or some strange thing that one of their colleagues did during an interview. Um, I think that it's a lot easier to say as a company or as a startup founder or as a recruiter that you're going to embrace weirdness and it's much harder to do it, right? And so so you had people in the PayPal ranks. I interviewed two people, this gentleman, Bradley Halburn and a gentleman named Tom Pytel. Both weren't just college dropouts, they were high school dropouts, right? And and we're, we're, so we're talking about abandoning education in its entirety, you know, at that level beyond middle school, Right. And Tom's line to me is just, I just didn't, I thought high school was kind of stupid and I wasn't learning anything. So I was going to go write code and build things. Bradley moonlights and, and gets paying work as a high school student writing code and then decides he's not going to finish high school either. Boy, try, try selling a, a, you know, a, no, a no high school education. I mean, I'm sure that's easier in our era than it was back then. But we are, not, we are talking about a group of, there were a fair, fair number of misfits in this story in that way. 
I would I would also argue though that it was it wasn't just an, a generic group of people who cut against the grain. It was people who cut against the grain, but then read widely, watch films widely, had real intellectual curiosity about the world. So I, I would argue that there was something about that in the water. It's easier to honor it in the breach than in the observance, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to say you're going to be good with weird than actually to be good with weird. Let's just wrap up with one final question. Listeners should understand the amount of research, including primary interviews you did as part of this project. What would you take away from the interviews you did with this group of founders? Are there, is there any big picture takeaways for you or are there any anecdotes or observations that will stick with you long after you're done promoting the book? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. These were interviews where the preparation for them often felt like a really boring Rocky montage, right? Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't chasing chickens. I was like watching YouTube videos and, and reading old, you know, articles from 1999 and 2000. What I would say is this, the interviews themselves revealed the personality quirks of the people at the heart of the story. I went in and I was trying to be genial and, you know, sort of friendly and thoughtful. And I had done my homework. I had to be on my toes because these people called me out regularly mid-interview. If I got something wrong, a word out of place, right? And I would hear about it, right? I remember once I was actually on a text thread with, with two or three of the alumni and I had said something. And in this sort of classically PayPal way, they, they just all but called it. They're like, well, that's a dumb idea. No one's going to go for that, right? <laughs> meaning, meaning like, boy, like I'm just, a, I'm an outsider. I'm not an alum. But they sort of roped me into the way they do things, which is, it's not out of disrespect. If we're calling your idea dumb, it's because we respect you so much and we want you to come up with a better idea, right? And I appreciated by the end the level of pushback because the pushback came from a place of respect for ideas. And I, I don't think you know you don't want this in every part of your life, right? Like you definitely you definitely don't want it all the time because it's hard to live with. But I, I think what I walk away with is this sense that can we navigate our way to a place where it's okay to be critical uh, and maybe even sharply so, so that someone understands the point, but to do it in a way that, that sort of comes from this genuine, hey, I, I respect you a lot. This is why I'm going to call you stupid <laughs> and tell you that to me, you're wrong about this. And here's the five ways you're wrong. I don't have a precise, I wasn't writing a how-to book. I don't have a precise way to cultivate that, but I can tell you that it's one of the most powerful reflections I take away from having done the book. Well, there's many other reflections reflected in the book, which, of course, is the founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Jimmy Sony, congratulations on its release. And thank you for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.